Bienvenidos, and welcome to the Jacobin Sports Show. I'm your host, as always, Matthew Miranda, and I am getting old, and I'm going to tell you how I know I'm getting old. This morning, I left my house. I went to go to the store to buy some t-shirts. Burlington Coat Factory, a store I've been to many times, they got cheap-ass t-shirts, $8, 100% cotton t-shirts. So I'm off to Burlington Coat Factory, been to the store many times in my life. I drive down, I turn into the plaza, Burlington Coat Factory is not there. And I'm thinking, what? And then I'm thinking, oh, okay, I think it's that other little plaza right before this. I pull up there. Nope. I was literally, I don't know, a mile away from the plaza that like I actually had to be in. It was a completely different street. Um, and I feel like this may be an indication of early like memory stuff because I i don't know how many times I've gone to the store. It was like for, for a brief window, I had no I had no idea how that one street was completely different than another. I mentioned this because this is literally my third attempt at this podcast. Because the prior two, I, I'm, if you care, I use StreamYard um, to record these episodes. And on StreamYard, when you're going to record an episode, you don't just have to... This is like the third different platform I think I've used since we started potting. We started with Zoom. And then it was Zencaster, and now it's StreamYard. And the thing that's unique about StreamYard is you not only have to click start recording, but there's a little thumbnail um, video of you that you can see on the screen. And you have to click, you've got to put your cursor over that thumbnail and click on something that says add to stream. Otherwise, even though you can see yourself and hear yourself, and even though you've clicked start recording, it's not actually recording. Uh, I did this once before months ago. It was a nightmare. And then literally last night, I did an episode from about 11 p.m. until midnight. Went downstairs to post it, go to sleep. I go to post it. There's nothing there. There's no volume. The file will show you like, oh, there's 60 minutes. But there's literally, you can't hear anything. None of the audio has recorded because you weren't added to the stream. So I go to bed very frustrated, but okay, you know what? I'll just consider that a practice run. I'll do it again in the morning and get it out. I literally just got 20 minutes into re-recording it and noticed I had once again forgotten to hit the stream thing on the thumbnail. So I am possibly losing my mind fast. Not going to lie to you. There's a lot of THC in my past. Like this may be happening quicker than I wanted. So Let's just get through this episode. Um, and there's a lot to get through in this episode. Yes, yes, I say that probably every week, but there's literally, first definition, a lot of stuff to get through this week. Um, and first, a little programming sequence note. Usually, when I have a guest, the interview comes first and then all the other stuff. Um, just for how sequencing worked this week, I'm first going to record this part now, which is just me talking to you about stuff in the world of sports. I'll do the usual like sign offy stuff. And then after that, the interview is going to come with today's guest. Today's guest is Elizabeth Adetiba, wonderful um, sports writer, a postdoctoral candidate uh, out of Columbia, has written a lot about um, police violence, gender violence, 
she wrote a piece in SB Nation a couple years ago about Castro Semenya. If you don't know Castro Semenya, she is a South African track and field star. Um, has has been, especially up until about 2020, I would say, was like a blockbuster athlete in the sport. And track and field is an it's it's not the biggest sport in this country, but it's still one of the premier summer Olympic events and the big sport around the world. Like there's not a pro track and field league. I kind of wish there was because it's really fun to watch, but it's enormously popular in this country and around the world. So Cassius Semenya is a big deal globally. We'll remember, hopefully in our last episode, I had on Frankie de la Creta and they were speaking a lot about how in the world of women's swimming, Leah Thomas, a transgender swimmer um, has been, there's a word that starts with V. Oh, when someone is treated unpleasantly, they have been, I don't know. There's just been virulent ugliness um, as, as Frankie clued us into about people opposed to Leah Thomas and being even allowed to participate in women's swimming and all the historical and cultural um, details that factor into why swimming in particular is a nexus of racial privilege, gender privilege, you know, how much even the question around Leah Thomas and swimming um, touches on all these other social constructs. Frankie also has written uh, they wrote a book with friend of the pod, Lindsay D'Arcangelo, about the history of women's tackle football. And we spoke in that discussion, and they made an excellent point about how um, this is the fact that the NFL is helping to fund men's flag football, but not men's. And that, like the NFL will, will supports men's tackle football and women's flag football. It doesn't promote men's flag football, despite acknowledging that CTE is a thing and flag football is safer and that's part of why they want women involved in it. They don't support men's flag football. They don't support women's tackle football. And part of that, especially on the not supporting women's tackle football, comes down to the, the question of who you think is allowed to take risks and make decisions with their bodies. So there's all these complexities, right? That went with Leah Thomas. Castro Semenya's story is different Castro Semenya is not a transgender athlete. Castro Semenya is intersex. But you will hear, if you listen to the interview, and I really hope you do, um, Elizabeth does a wonderful job of bringing to the forefront all of the factors that combine to have created a, a global energy around going after Semenya, not just Semenya, but athletes like Semenya, and disproportionately go after Global South specifically sub-Saharan black women athletes. but And that's really the focus of the interview with, with Elizabeth. I'll, I'll say, I just read about this in the Telegraph the other day. Um, I think it was the Swedish soccer team is saying that in, in a World Cup, maybe 10 years ago, that they were, for, they were ordered to, exp, to expose their genitalia to confirm that they were the right kind of woman and they went along with it uncomfortably because they wanted to play like in the world cup um so there's a lot to it the point i'm trying to very inarticulately make is that there's so much to it it's so worth listening to the interview elizabeth is a great 
writer, a great speaker, and there's just so much rich, meaningful material. Um, we also talked about Tori Bowie, the American um, three-medal Olympic winning track and field star who died um, in her eighth month of, her eighth month of pregnancy um, from complications, apparently including respiratory distress and eclampsia. We talked about how that is an issue that, again, sadly, intersects with a lot of other issues in terms of race, in terms of society, in terms of sports. Very worth listening to. Please, please check it out. Um, let me get now into all the stuff that I want to get into first in the world of sports. And I would be remiss if I did not expose you for at least a few minutes to the joyful heart of a Manchester City fan on this day. Uh, it was a week ago in Istanbul, in the 68th minute, a goal from Rodri gave City a one nothing lead, which they would hold on to. They won their first Champions League trophy ever. This year they completed their first treble and only the second treble in English. I think it's the first one since 99, not only the second one ever, but it's the first one since 1999, uh, which was Manchester United. A, a treble means that you won the three biggest trophies that you could. So they won the Premier League. They were the best team in the league. They won the Champions League trophy, and they won the FA Cup, which is the biggest like domestic um, club competition in Europe across all different leagues. Great game. Um, contested. Really tough play from both teams. A couple near goals for Inter at the end. One, a player headed it off his teammate, and another one, just by complete dumb luck, uh, they they had a goal that Lukaku looked to be headed in, and it just happened to bounce off the goalkeeper Ederson's like shin. Um, he, he didn't try to do anything; he just got lucky and it bounced off him, or he was in the right place. I don't know, but a very dramatic finish. Literally came down to the very last kick of the game, a corner for Milan for Inter. Um, the Inter player headed it; it was headed towards the net. Again, Ederson uh, knocked it away, and that was the win. I will say the most striking thing about this city team, and I've literally never seen this in the nearly 40 years that I have been following professional sports on some level, um, starting in 1986 with the Mets, starting with the 1986 Mets, all the greatest teams I've seen, 86 Mets, greatest baseball team I've ever seen, 94 Rangers, greatest hockey team. Uh, I've seen the Giants win three Super Bowls. I have never seen a team of mine who won a title, sorry, that won a title. I don't know why my brain feels it has to think in AP style, but it just helps sometimes. I've never seen a team of mine not face, you know, the knife's edge at some point. Like be really, really, really looking like they're in trouble. 86 Mets essentially played three elimination games won two of them in extra innings. The other one, they were down three runs in the sixth, then they won. The 94 Rangers. Three elimination games. Uh, one of them, they were losing. One of them went to double overtime. But they won. Every team at some point, you know, faces that adversity. I have to tell you, that really never happened with City this year. And it was striking. 
it's not to I mean, there was never a point. They were in second place most of the season. The Premier League starts in August and ends in, I think, the very beginning, kind of May. Um, City were in second place until April. And even in as late as March, I think, there was a point that they were eight, eight points behind Arsenal. There was never a doubt in my mind that they were going to pull it out, and they did. FA Cup final, they were tied with United. The game meant you know, so much to United. It would have been a, their biggest trophy in years uh, over City of all teams, and it would really establish that they've turned things around under the new coach, Eric Ten Hag. Um, it would keep City from the treble, which would mean the 99 United team would still have that status as the last treble winner in England. I wasn't worried. I think it was one-to-one in the second half. I wasn't worried. And Inter played really well in this game. There were close calls. But there, I was never concerned that City were going to lose. I was always knew they're going to figure this out somehow. That is unique. That may sound like kind of sterile. Like, okay, what's the what is there any joy in rooting for oh I can tell you there is. Yes. Uh there have been a few moments where my teams have pulled out a win that compelled a tear or two in my life. It's not always about titles. Uh, when the Knicks got to the 99 finals, I cried a little. Like, that was a shocking, shocking... There were so many reasons for it. I was very moved by City's win. I think the haters and the a lot of the press miss out on this um, because they just want to focus on... I'll get to that later. But not to be formalist, but the way that certain the way that sports are structured differently from each other, I think creates the capacity for different emotions that are unique as a fan of each sport. For example, football, it's one game. The football playoffs, you play one game against your opponent. You get about three and a half hours to decide who wins and who loses. Because that's how football works. You can't play a best of seven unless you spend two months doing it. So there's an extreme intensity to a one day, this is it, one game for all the marbles. There's a different kind of intensity. I don't think it's any less, but it just it articulates differently when you have a sport like baseball or hockey especially where you can have a seven-game series because now there's so much more room for nuance and drama and different textures and things to enter into the the story of the series that you can get to a game seven like when the Celtics and Heat just went to seven after the Heat were up three nothing and the Celtics won three in a row the the energy into that coming into that game seven is amazing unique though you have to be able to have that um that structure you can't get that in football in soccer because the English domestic game values these trophies above like everything the FA cup and the, and the, especially the league and city had gone over When I started watching city, they had gone at that point, I think 32 years without winning any kind of a trophy at all. And there was a banner that the fans at old Trafford United stadium 
the fans there literally had a banner every year that city went without winning a trophy they would add a year to it and it said like years without a trophy very insulting so that contributes to this like this specific soccer fan energy like you hear fa cup like who cares like it's not the league it's not the champions league like who cares about a third trophy but it really depending on where you are as a team it means a lot a year ago when city had no shot at the trouble fa cup uh like who cares you know they win it they win it they don't they've already won it before but the first time they won it in 2011 it was an enormous deal because it broke that streak of 35 years so when you add the energy of that like oh my god they won this trophy and in the semifinals they beat united of all people get there and then you add a year later they win the season over united it's their first season title i think since the 70s where i've united has been the dominant team in english football for years and city win the title in 2012 on the literal final kick of the season in a game where they needed two goals in stoppage time to win, and they got two goals in stoppage time to win. You add those two things together. Once those two things are done, the last big goal to complete the project, as it's been called, since uh, since Abu Dhabi bought City, the project has been they want a champion. Like the Champions League trophy is the culmination of everything. So very early in this project, they get the FA Cup, great. They get the Premier League, awesome. Over the next decade, they come to dominate the Premier League, awesome. But there's, it's still the Champions League is the thing that they're holding out for, the capstone over everything, the crown. So when they won the game Saturday against Inter and finally did it, it really did feel like you'd been on a quest for 15 years and it's finally over and you did it. I've never had that feeling as a fan. It's not possible to have it in American sports. Um, so I thought that was cool. There was also certainly some, some shot in Freuda. I'm not going to lie at watching City receiving their medals from the UEFA officials, UEFA being the governing body who charged City with financial doping a couple of years ago, threatened them with terrible, terrible penalties, and then all the charges were dismissed on appeal. You may remember in 2005, 2006, when the Miami Heat won the NBA title they had just acquired Shaquille O'Neal to do it. Shaq and Kobe had broken up. Kobe got Shaq traded out of L.A., and there was a lot of bitterness there. And after the Heat won that title, Shaq was at a club, and the cameras were running. And somewhere in a verse, he ended with, Kobe, tell me how my ass tastes. Watching City getting those trophies from UEFA had serious, tell me how my ass tastes, energy in all the best ways. I defy you to find another pod that talks about the ideal use of tell me how my ass tastes. And yet, for all the drama 
all the joy, all the relief, all the ecstasy as a, as a fan of City and for all the amazing amazingness of what they did. Life is <laughs> life is unexpected, and I was reminded of this because the two biggest moments in the game were both rendered anticlimactic for me. When Rodri scored the goal in the 68th minute, um, front of the pod, Mike Island, actually, we were texting back and forth during the game because he's also a City fan, and Mike somehow was like, his TV is in a different city, but we were watching the same network, but Mike was about 40 seconds ahead of me. So we're texting kind of all these general vibey feelings, and then he texts something that makes it obvious that like City had had scored, uh, and I'm watching for like forty seconds until it happens. It was very nice to see. I'll take it, um, but it did take the edge off a little bit of of what it probably would have felt like to see it without knowing. And then on the very last corner, excuse me, I just need a sip of water. On the very last corner, the literal moment that the interplayer is about to run and kick it, my niece comes in the room who is trying on dresses because she's going to her, her middle school dance. It's like her first school dance that she's going to, and she wants to know what I think. And I'm a good uncle, so as soon as I see that it's her and I know why she's in there, like... All my focus is on, you know, the dress, which looks great, and the shoes, and the, the her necklace, and everything. And, but I'm very conscious that like the game has just ended right behind me. Um, I can tell from the noise, like the ambient noise, that City have won because uh, there's not an announcer screaming about a goal going in. And if you're going to be distracted, like let it be. Oh my God! All right, my team just won. I think is better than, oh my God, they just, I don't know actually which is better, but they were the two biggest moments of the game. They were both slightly uh, lesser than they may have been, but season as a whole, I'm going to take that. And yet, meanwhile, after City accomplishes this historical feat, the English press has headlines like this one, quote, Man City can celebrate all they want but a dark cloud hover, hovers over their treble triumph. And, and then there was another one, quote, Manchester City are closing in on sporting immortality. So why is everyone so indifferent? So this feels like a very distinctly old world energy to me. Um, and maybe it's part of being in the culture of a faded empire. Uh, we'll, we'll get our chance to know soon enough. But the way that the British press will fawn over any three-game winning streak by Liverpool or Manchester United, any little three-game winning streak, and you'll see little articles popping up about how this could be the team that went, this could be a title-winning team. And City, you know, they talk about like, like they're a war criminal. There is a definite symmetry between we value tradition more than like the reality of the world in front of us. 
and a country that spent $125 million to have a party for their new king while more and more of their people went hungry and cold over the winter. There's a definite symmetry to me between the resentment of this club for daring to branch out into a, not just into a social circle where they don't belong, but above it. None of City's league rivals at this moment look like they have any any chance to lay a glove on this team. Maybe Arsenal, I mean, Arsenal had a great season. They have to do it again. A lot of teams have had a good season during City's run, and then you don't really hear from them again. Um, Arsenal lost both games to City last year. They're going to have to get that win. They're going to have to get it. You know, they can get it in a big spot against them. Um, Arsenal, I think, are helped by the fact that Chelsea is struggling so much that Arsenal now is probably the London destination of choice for international players who want to come to the Premier League but they want to do it in London. Um, I think for years, Chelsea has been that destination club. And I think Arsenal after last season, Chelsea was 42 points behind City. Like They have an owner who to this point looks like a jackass. Uh, they've already had, I think, three coaches in this year, at least. Like Chelsea has a lot of stuff to figure out. I think Arsenal have leveled up above them. Uh, United had a nice season, but still, you know, third place and one trophy, and it's not one of the two major trophies that they played for. We'll see. It'll help them. Being in the Champions League will be good for them, um, and hopefully they can start to get the kind of player they used to have um, to keep themselves in the Champions League. Liverpool, Liverpool, you know, they usually tend to figure things out pretty well, but Liverpool hasn't won a major trophy in three years, and there's not really any area as an or, as a franchise where they have an edge on, on City. Like, City has a better starting 11. City has a better bench. City has a better youth academy. City has better revenues. City has more spending power. Uh, City has more trophies. All of this may sound boring to you. I'm going to get off of soccer now, but I just have to tell you, I always wondered as a, a Met Nick, as, as a fan of teams who really never win, I would sometimes wonder, like, is it is it boring if your team is just, like, amazingly dominant good? No, it is not boring. It is really nice. The NBA Finals also wrapped up last week with the Denver Nuggets winning the series over Miami four games to one. So much fun to watch Nikola Jokic play. So much fun to see him win it all this year and and get the, the audience that I think his game deserves. Um, he may be the only player in the NBA that the shape-shifting heat could not find some kind of a combination or an answer for. Um, there's no one like him. And there's a LeBron quality to, to Jokic in that LeBron was not the biggest player on the floor, but he was big. Um, he was bigger than most and smarter than everybody and better than everybody. Um, but Jokic is literally pretty much almost always the biggest player on the floor and 
the most skilled. I mean, he's as good a passer as you've seen. Not for a center, just for anybody. He's as good a passer as, as there is. He's an unbelievable shooter. He's more of a threat as a shooter than even I think LeBron was. He's a remarkable, remarkable player. Um, Jamal Murray, also a, a player very easy to root for, um, who had an ACL tear a little over two years ago and came back from that, which is still, with all the advances there's been in sports medicine, it's still a difficult um, recovery process. I've been I've been doing physical therapy for like the last month, and I go for like forty five minutes every day, and I'm not like coming out of it drenched in sweat. Like it's it's work. Like I'm feeling what I'm doing, but I don't imagine that I know what I'm doing is not anywhere near the intensity of what somebody recovering from an ACL tear has to go through. And I am mentally like drain sometimes I don't want to do it like I, I know it helps I, I can literally see it helping my body but there's mentally like the physically the work is not it's not at all difficult but at some point mentally it is a challenge like oh like I just sleep in today like do I have to? so I have incredible respect for someone coming off an ACL tear and in two years getting right back to where he was uh, he's such an incredible player. Similarly, Michael Porter Jr., the guy who came out of college, looked at as a he's a brilliant shooter. Wasn't really sure does he do anything else. His shot was not always there in the in the playoffs, but he, particularly as a rebounder, was much more involved, much more three dimensional. This also someone very easy to root for in terms of what he's been through. Between the ages of 18 and 23, he had three back surgeries. He missed, God, he missed a whole year. His rookie year of the NBA, he missed after a surgery. Last season, he had surgery just nine games into the season and then was out the rest of the year also. Um, this was an injury that cost him a lot of money. He was expected to be the top pick in the draft the year that he came out and he fell to 14 because there was so much concern about his medical records and that was before one of his other surgeries to see him playing at the level that he did was really awesome just on a human level so congratulations to the Denver Nuggets um, I will say very 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 quickly on Zion Williamson and John Morant, pretty much just this. Um, I don't care who Zion Williamson has sex with. As far as John Morant, I don't know what the adjective is. There's a Mad Libs here. I feel blank at the fact that John Morant got suspended for 25 games for a second offense. 
he hasn't. John Morant got 25 games. Because for the second time, he was on a live stream seen holding a gun in a playful fashion. Miles Bridges, the Charlotte Hornets, got a 30-game suspension for violently, feloniously assaulting the mother of his children in front of his children. I feel blank. I don't know what the adjective is. Um... Ja Morant is very much the Adam Silver NBA um, it's their version of David Stern making sure the NBA doesn't get too thuggy is the word that they would use they would say thug There's absolutely a question about, you know, John Morant getting in trouble for this a couple of months ago and then getting in trouble for it again now is like eyebrow raising. He hasn't actually done anything criminal or wrong. So he's been suspended for 25 games because he had a gun, which, as we all know in this country, is your God-given right I don't <laughs> I know it's a weird juxtaposition, but John Morant always looks very happy when he has a gun. I have to say. <laughs> like I don't know if these guns are loaded. Um but I don't know, man. I don't know. I see John Morant getting twenty John Morant has now been suspended for more games for smiling with guns on a live stream than Miles Bridges got for assaulting a woman. I I think that's... uh, I don't know what the word is. Please email jacobinsports at gmail.com. Tell us what word you would use. Um, I am stuck for a word, but there is something there. Speaking of something... WNBA, Brittany Griner, last week, was the victim of an incident at the Dallas-Fort Worth International Airport. Griner and her team, the Phoenix Mercury, were set to fly out of Dallas to Indiana after they had played two games against the Wings. Griner was accosted, um, harassed, and yelled at by a man who had 
apparently made it his goal to film himself accosting her there. There's no reason that this had to happen. The man is an obvious jackass. There's no reason that any of this has to happen. WNBA two years ago fined Liberty owner Joe Sy half a million dollars after finding out that Sy had been flying the team to games on on a private charter. No one, no WMA team has a private charter. So the league's logic is no one is allowed to have private charter until everyone has private charter. Otherwise, it's a competitive disadvantage. Let me tell you about a man named DeLon Wright. I'm willing to bet that half of the audience has never heard of DeLon Wright. I'm willing to bet that the half of you who have, like me, would not recognize him. If he passed me on the street, I would not know who he is. He's, this is easy to explain. He's a career backup. Um, he's played for seven teams in eight years. He's really bounced around for a while now. Um, this is an NBA player whose Instagram page has four photos total. That's it, four. If the NBA were currency, DeLon Wright would be a, a penny. He would be a hay penny. This is not an insult. This is just to say DeLon Wright is literally he's a coin of the realm player. He is, you know, he's a basic NBA player. If every NBA team spent the cost of one DeLon Wright, he made $8 million last year. If every team spent $8 million, that would cover the amount, the $250 million that the WNBA says it would cost for all of its teams to fly a charter. You hear that and you're like, oh my God, they just... Why would you not just do it? That's such an easy win. Like here, here's a moment of, they're not affiliated anymore. The NBA used to own the WNBA. It does not own the WNBA anymore, but they're they're certainly culturally you know related. Um, and the NBA has so much money, and we're always hearing about you know the progressive Adam Silver NBA. If every team spent the cost of DeLon Wright, which is less then what the average salary is, the average NBA salary per year is $12 million. If they spend less than that average salary, each team, every WNBA team could fly private charter. And you hear that and you're like, oh my God, just do it. And then you find out it's actually even worse than that. Because that early report that listed the number at $250 million, that apparently was a typo because... Every site that has reported on it since then, everywhere you check now, the number is 25 million. 25 million. You could you could crowdsource 25 million as the WNBA. Between the money that your fans would donate, between the money that corporations would donate wanting to earn goodwill, 
you would raise that $25 million in a day. Instead, your players fly commercial. Griner is at the airport with her team flying commercial. And is subjected to an experience no one, no one should be subjected to that kind of behavior. World-class athletes, public figures, there's a reason why they're not generally sitting around the airport lounge with you. They can be targets. They don't want to be targets. Brittany Griner very specifically is not someone who needs to be targeted and and made to feel threatened given what she's gone through in her life the last couple of years. This is a bad job by the WNBA, which is arguably the most deft like public relations league in sports. They're usually they usually have it all together. They do not look good in this. This is a betrayal of, of Griner specifically as a worker. The WNBA has failed to provide a safe working environment for her. And having your trauma triggered, that doesn't go away just because the threat is now gone. Like this is shit Griner now has to deal with. She should not have to be dealing with this. And it looks ridiculous for the country, the country's top women's basketball league, and one that I'm sure would like to argue it's the best in the world, to be crying relative poverty about an issue that is so fundamental to player safety and workplace justice. Instead of finding Joe Sai half a million dollars that's two percent of what you need to get everyone charters get a loan from joe sai he'll give you a loan for 25 million private charters the way franchise values grow he'll make that money down the road easy the only reason and and there's a particular injustice and grotesqueness to griner being victimized here the only reason the man who harassed her knows who she is is because of what a big story it became nationally when she was imprisoned in russia she was imprisoned in russia because she was playing in russia because the WNBA doesn't pay its star players enough for most of them to just finish the WNBA season and stay stateside for their offseason. Most of the league plays overseas um, because that's where they make more money. That's why Griner was in Russia in the first place. This is a second case where because this premier league globally, WNBA, doesn't treat its star like it should treat a star. That star has now been victimized by it. That human being has now been victimized by it. Twice, Griner has been victimized by the league letting her down. Let me take you back in history now to 1942. 
I want you to pretend that we're in Stalingrad, Russia, and the German army has, you know, invaded, destroyed the city. And the battle for the city has been going on for months now. Everywhere you look, there's grays of truck through snow and twisted steel. Whole cityscape is just sniper infested rubble. Everyone is hurting. The German soldiers don't have food. They don't have warm clothing. Tens of thousands of them are starving to death. The Soviets are fighting for their lives. Pretty much if they lose this battle, the Germans are going to overrun past the Volga to the Ural Mountains. It's, it's, they can't lose this city. They need a win. They haven't had a win really in the year since Germany first invaded them. It's huge for both sides. So imagine you're, you're a Soviet soldier. One morning, you're a sniper. And you look out from the rubble from your position down at the city. And you're a sniper, so you have very good eyesight. But even you're like a little like, am I, am I seeing things? Because you look down at the street, say it's like 6 in the morning, and the mist is just starting to part on a cold day. And right there in the middle of the street, you see Adolf Hitler and Joseph Stalin making out like a couple of tipsy teenagers. Can you imagine like how confused you would be? That is how PGA golfers felt when they learned very recently that the PGA and its mortal enemy, the Live Tour, the Saudi-owned Live Tour, have not only called a truce, but are marrying each other. They're coming together. Don't call it a merger, I read, um, for certain legal and antitrust purposes, I think. It sounds like they, they're trying to not legally call it a merger. And there's already government... Um, kind of stiffing around the deal um it and they're certainly going to take a look at it for for certain legalities but the pga and live decided to come together their golfers are stunned um the, the merger now includes the pga the live tour and something called the dp tour which all my rank can tell is that like that is the faith no more to metallica and guns and roses on their tour many years ago. If you know what I'm referring to, you are my people. Um, this this is a weird story, this PGA Live thing. Um, it strains a lot of my, my limits as a pro-labor biped. Like, on the one hand, the golfers you know, are the employees, and they were stunned by this announcement, and now not stunned by it in a good way. Um, the, the, uh, the, the birth of the Live Tour involved taking golfers from the PGA, high-profile golfers, um, away from the PGA, and there was a civil war, if you can ascribe that term, to people in khakis. Um, but there was there was a rift, certainly, and it's continued legally. Um, they've been fighting each other in the courts. That's part of what is really bizarre about this. The PGA seemed to be relatively in the dominant position. They still have most of the best players live 
um, the ratings for live golf tournaments were pretty abysmal in in most legal decisions in cases between them the pga has been winning it didn't look like there was any leverage um, for live to call off the fight much less merge um, but then again un- unholy amounts of money make a lot of things possible that would not otherwise be um Part of what makes this also controversial for so many people is that both I mean both parties invite controversy. Um, the Saudi government owns the Live Golf Tour through their public investment fund. Um, those are some of the worst people on earth. The people who run the PGA are also some of the worst people on earth. These are the kinds of people who would lead even God to look back and and think like maybe I should have, maybe my uncle was right and I should have gone into radiology. Like there's a shortage of radiologists. Maybe that would have been better. Like these are not good people. Professional golfers. uh, If they're not on the list, they're in the margins. Like this is a sport whose great stage, the masters, the, holy sacred ground of golf is staged at a club that didn't allow a black member until 1990. Um, You can go to Wikipedia and find the delightful things that um, were said in the past about the perspective of there ever being a black member. There was not a woman member until 2012, at which point they admitted Condoleezza Rice, who's a war criminal, Darla Moore, a billionaire banking executive. Ginny Rometty, IBM CEO. And Diana Murphy, Diana Murphy, the former president of the United States Golf Association, meaning one of the people who helps to run golf, bringing us back full circle to our original premise, none of these are good people. There's a lot of anxiety around the Saudi angle here about sports washing where nation states buy teams and they flood them with, or leagues in this case, and they fund it extravagantly and there's exorbitant investment um, ostensibly in the hopes that the good feelings that it creates for foreign fans will translate into a more benign impression of their countries and a greater willingness to overlook the human rights atrocities that they commit. This theory kind of misses me on a couple levels. One, um, I know there's a lot of evidence to the contrary of this, but most people are capable of keeping two different thoughts in their head at the same time. Like you can follow a team or a sport or whatever golf is. You can follow that and still always know, you know what, the person writing the checks here is a real dick. People deal with that pretty much in every part of their lives. Like at least in a in a late stage capitalist society, think of almost any as- <clears throat> think of almost any aspect of your life. It is in, it is determined by whoever writes the checks, and that person is a dick. So we're already prepared for that. Feeling like like a Man City fan, a Newcastle fan. Um, 
oh, I'm glad my team has money now to spend on better players is not necessarily proof of a blind spot or moral apathy. Um, is it better for the world if Abu Dhabi, instead of spending $2 billion on Man City the last 15 years, had just kept the money in investments instead and watched their portfolio grow? Like, Would that make the world a, a more just place? Would the global media have written as many stories about human rights violations in Abu Dhabi if there were no English soccer club connection? The other reason I'm, I'm skeptical about this uh, anxiety sometimes is do we not remember who and what the owners were like before the nation state started buying teams? Like when you dig back into the the 1990s, the 1970s, earlier in other sports, like are you seeing a lot of heart of gold stories about benevolent sports owners from a, a golden age. Owners are capitalists. They capitalize. They literally capitalize on the work and ingenuity of others and then hoard those workers' unpaid wages for themselves, and they call it profit. All the trophy city of one, with all those glittery trophies, was it better if they had gone to a team owned by an American venture capitalist or a Russian oligarch instead. A week ago, professional golf was a rich man's game. Today, professional golf is a rich man's game. All that's changed is where the money goes. Nothing else changes here. That is it for this part of the episode, but do stay tuned uh, because the interview with Elizabeth at a tea will be coming up right afterwards. Um, remember as always you can follow us on Twitter at Jackman Sports email us at jackmansports at gmail.com our guest if you would like to follow her on Twitter is at Liz Tweets Things it's as simple as it sounds hey I have a haiku for you <clears throat> patreon.com slash Jacobin Sports Show is our Patreon site Thank you. Our next episode, uh, I will talk about breaking up with Major League Baseball. I think I am done, 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 and there are many reasons for it. Um, but that'll be next episode. Keep an eye out for that next week. Um, thank you, as always, for your time and your ear. I hope you all have a nice day. So the NBA season ended just a few days ago um, with the Denver Nuggets winning the championship led by their seven-foot so-called unicorn, Nikola Jokic. If you're not familiar, unicorn is a word that is used um, primarily in basketball, but now I think in sports in general, um, for athletes who possess an unusual combination of size and skill. Uh, these are idyllic chimeras that unify nature's gifts and the athlete's own personal drive. And all throughout Jokic's dominance, Jokic is a seven-foot man who can, can see and play and dribble and shoot like someone much, much shorter. All throughout his incredible run, I never heard a single person on the air um, or in any community suggest that he should have his legs cut to shorten him by four inches in the interest of helping his competitors. I have never heard anyone suggest that Michael Phelps' limbs should be shrunk 
or Usain Bolt's legs. Uh, Kylian Mbappe, best soccer player possibly in the world. No one's ever protested against his exceptional physique. Even Major League Baseball, the stodgiest of pro sports, is in love with Shohei Otani, who's a completely unique, unusual um, player. But this is not always the case with all athletes and their bodies. And so I wanted to bring in today's guest um, to talk in part about a place where this same attitude, this the same kind of valor and appreciation becomes something much darker and much different and try to explore um, why that happens and what it says about sports and maybe what it says about us. So uh, I would like to introduce today's guest. Today's guest is a doctoral candidate and National Science Foundation graduate fellow in the Department of Sociology at Columbia University. Her writing on police violence, gender violence, and criminal justice has been featured in Huffington Post, Slate, The Nation, and The Black Youth Project. I want to welcome to the Jackman Sports Show for the first time, Elizabeth Aditiba. And I want to say, when I say, how are you, I want to be very specific about how much I mean that. I've just been learning about ultra marathoners, who are these people that will run literally like a marathon every day for a month. And doctorate students are basically like the ultra marathoners of the mind. So <laughs> you people, like for years, you have to go through. So when I say, how are you? It's not a casual, like, I really want to know doctoral students, how are you? So Elizabeth, how are you today, really? Okay, okay. Let me be super honest okay i am fatigued i am sort of teetering on the brink of burnout to be mm. completely honest with you um i love the research that i do uh and not love in the sense that i think it's um fun per se i don't think there's anything fun about sort of studying scientific racism um, and sort of institutional uh, scientific racism specifically. Uh, however, I'm fascinated uh, in the worst ways, I think, by some of the things that I find um, through my research. And I am really only propped up by people who are very interested in in, in sort of learning about this issue and discussing this issue. Um, so when I wrote the Semenya piece, I, when it was published actually, I was kind of sort of thinking about dropping out of my PhD program. I was like, I don't know if I can do this. It's, it, it was 2021, so this is, I started writing it in 2020, went through multiple drafts of it. So everything with COVID, I was like, I don't even know about, I don't even know about the direction the world is heading, let alone the direction I'm heading. So um, I really appreciate the opportunity to be able to talk about this because it, this is one of the things that um, I get sort of reignites that spark within me. That's like, okay, I'm mm -hmm. almost there. I gotta keep, I gotta keep going. I gotta keep mm -hmm. going. If, if I did my math right and everything goes to plan, I'm really about like, a year and a half away from defending my dissertation. Okay. Um, so I have way more years behind me than I have in front of me. Mm -hmm. So I'm just trying to keep, keep chugging along without sort of hitting the breaking point. I think. <laughs> Thank you for asking. That sounds to me like um, the, 
I taught for a while at one university, and then when I moved, I was a visiting professor for a year at a different college. And I had had a, a always in my initial, the first school that I taught at, it was all positive. Like my department was wonderful, my students were wonderful. Um, I was working with an international like population. Like everything about it was delightful. And then the new university was nothing. They hired me late. They just needed a body to to teach a class. Um, a, a few classes and everything about it was a, was a nightmare. I didn't know like a, a, a college could be like that. And I remember in the winter, I live like way up north where it's very cold. And in the winter, I had like, I had terrible plantar fasciitis. The university had hired me late enough that they didn't have faculty parking at this school. They just had like everybody, there was a, a period where everybody could pay students faculty anybody to get a parking spot wherever they want on campus so by the time i got hired i was hired the first week of august for that fall semester so there was nothing like i couldn't get a spot more than a half mile basically from the campus so every day i am walking on this dead foot it's freezing cold i hate everything about where i am and i remember for a while getting unpleasantly accustomed to the voice in my head that would just all day was droning left foot, right foot, left <laughs> foot, right foot. And I feel like you're kind of in that like intellectual point of like left foot, right foot. I just got to get there. Yes. I, there's an ABC family movie. Um, I guess it's called Santa Claus or something. One of the old animated Christmas movies. Hmm. Um, and they had this song put one foot in front of the other and soon you'll be walking out that door. And I sing that every day. Like sometimes mm -hmm. I, I don't even catch myself mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and like I'll be like walking to my car and I'll hear sort of the sort of augmentation of the sound in the garage <laughs> as I'm like driving to the library and I'm like, put oh, one. I'm like, oh my God, I'm singing <laughs> this song in this moment or going mm -hmm. to a doctor's appointment or something. So at this point, um, I can't remember which um, NBA player always says this phrase, lock in, right? I'm, I'm just sort of locked mm -hmm. in. And if I even let myself start to like look a little like, like sometimes I'll, I'll get some random emails like, hey, like someone I know is looking for uh, someone to hire to work here, um, to work at this magazine or to work at this nonprofit. I'm like, if I even look yep. at that job posting, I'm going to lose the momentum. Can't do it. That I have. So I got to lock in and lock put in. one foot in front of the other. <laughs> mm -hmm. All right. Well, we're going to help you today. Stay locked in just on your own, your own writing, which should be, yeah. um, so tell me or tell us, um, who is Castra Semenya and why is why did she become such a story? Okay, so Castor Semenya is uh, a South African runner, Olympic gold medalist winter, a winner, uh, and just an indomitable athlete. Um, and for those of us who appreciate running and the sport of track and field, um, seeing Castor Semenya uh, work up to winning the gold medal from her days as a youth athlete. If you're familiar with her, you just know that she's been 
one of the hottest things on the scene, one of the fastest things on the scene. Mm. Um, watching her run and get better and run faster times as the years go by has just been always been an exciting thing for me personally to witness. Um, however, a lot of people uh, not only do not like Castro Semenya, but actually don't want her within the sport um, because of her biological sex. So she was born intersex, um, but she, um, I guess since, uh, since being a child, she has always sort of identified and moved through life as a woman. However, um, and this is sort of a big part of the controversy around her, for some people, if you looked at her, maybe you would not automatically um, perceive her as a woman, um, a lot of people who don't want her um, within sort of the world athletics field um, often wrongly claim that she is transgender and there's nothing wrong with being transgender. It's just that she's not, she's actually right. not a transgender woman. Um, she um, was born intersex and moves through life as much as possible as um, a woman, as a, um, uh, uh, you know, a female, uh, and a lot of people from, you know, her competitors from other countries to um, the Olympic and world athletics um, leadership do not want her uh, to continue within the sport of track and field and actually want to um, kind of try to snatch her medals and her wins away from her. So this, this confuses the the Marxists in me. Um, and I don't know enough about the background. World Athletics, you mentioned, used to be the International Association of Athletics Federations, for those listening, the IAAF. I'm curious, track and field is a very popular sport around the world. It's not um, obviously on the level of, of world soccer or even individual sports like tennis. It's not quite on that level, but it is popular. It's looking to grow. I'm curious, the Marxist in me thinks, okay, if you have this obvious... Um, superstar in your sport sports market around superstars like you would want Castro Semenya to be promoted celebrated even even if you were to push it under the guise of like we know a lot of people don't like this athlete let's use that to foster is 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 this energy of going after your own athletes particularly in this case of of, of trying to regulate and define women's bodies and what counts as femininity and what it, has that been there in track and field before or did it, is it new with Semenya? So it's not new with um, Semenya. So a few years before um, Semenya, there was um, another athlete, uh, an Indian athlete, um, hmm. I believe. Um, Duty Chand. I can't quite remember, but there was an Indian athlete okay. who, um, also uh, was born intersex and did not fit sort of traditional uh, sort of gendered, you know, female presentation. Uh, and the IAAF um, more swiftly um, sort of booted her out and made her ineligible to compete. But you can even go back as far as the um, um, mid uh, 20th century um, with the IAAF um, or now World Athletics being very concerned about the uh, 
possibility of male athletes um, disguising themselves as female athletes in order to compete. And there were just a couple of cases um, where someone who actually was a man and did run um, as a man, but maybe did not qualify uh, for maybe a championship did put on a disguise weirdly enough and try to um, compete as uh, a woman. But um, those situations were few and far between. Mm-hmm. Um, you often sort of see though um, these large scale international sports federations become very interested in um, the sort of gender uh, and sex policing when it comes to um female-bodied athletes or competitors who are competing within the female category um, and women of color, mm-hmm. particularly women from the global South. Um, and this is, this may be, I guess, a potentially controversial opinion to have, but um, in many ways, people who perpetuate gendered racism um, aren't doing so for logical reasons. Um, like you mentioned, it would make sense to try to keep Semenya um, within these competitions for um, you know, revenue generating pur- purposes. Mm-hmm. Um, however, uh, World Athletics and the Olympics um, sort of uh, committee are so preoccupied with this idea of um, conventional um, portrayals of women in these sports. Mm-hmm. Um, you have um, some Ugandan athletes who, uh, based on testosterone tests that are by nature flawed and do not take into account just the wide breadth and variety of human you know, genetic variety, um, you have some Ugandan athletes and Kenyan athletes who've also been barred from competing. What that has done is that that has actually removed um, most of the top mid-distance competition. And so it's actually now opened up the race, uh, let's say the um, 1500 meter, 800 meter uh, races to now being sort of pretty comfortably um, dominated by uh, athletes from Western countries, European countries, specifically um, the Central and Eastern uh, Europeans. So Mm -hmm. revenue, unfortunately, or fortunately, just depending on, you know, how you view the issue, revenue is not um, the most important thing for these uh, committees. They have a vested interest in regulating women's bodies. It's part of the reason why you see that women's, uh, at least runners, uh, their athletes, uh, and, excuse me, their uniforms as athletes seem to get smaller and smaller and smaller as the years go on. When I was running track as a high school athlete, mm-hmm. I remember seeing some of the women's sports bottoms and thinking, how can anyone like <laughs> I don't understand who is this designed for? Who who is the 
was actually designed for. Right. But, I mean, the difference between 2008 and the uniforms that female athletes were wearing in 2008 versus what they wore at this your most recent Olympics, it's actually pretty night and day. They just seem to be getting smaller. You see more and more female athletes um, trying to protest and contest the mm -hmm. shrinking of these uniforms. And so you see that um, women's bodies are still heavily um, policed even within these sort of major international um, sporting conventions. I think, wasn't there a volleyball team that protested, a women's volleyball team, um, I feel like the German team maybe protested loudly um, that the, the out of, and, and of course you don't, the point obviously is there has been no correspondent reduction in men's uniforms it's not like there's some athletic advantage to getting skimpier but i remember it was i think it was the german volleyball team vocally were like this is ridiculous like we're not we're not going to wear this um you mentioned in your your piece in espionation about semenya um a couple other athletes um one was a burundian runner francine nuyasaba and then this really stood out to me you mentioned i think she was a, a more junior level athlete but um an athlete named annette negesa Yes. You mentioned had had invasive per the desire of world athletics. Um, I don't know how old this 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 person was, but I'm guessing younger. She was a junior level athlete. Mm -hmm. Had invasive surgery per the desire of world athletics, just so she could be allowed to continue to compete. The surgery ended up resulting in both physical and mental complications that she suffered from. And yet, world athletics wants Semenya not only to agree to that invasive surgery, but also to hormonal regulation you wrote. Mm -hmm. I don't have a question to follow it up with. I just have like my head exploding yeah. at the, the amount of, of entitlement, um, privilege, myopia, everything that has to go on in an organization, not one person, an organization that concludes, okay, this ruined someone else's life. You should do it too. Mm -hmm. And is there is there any? I know there's no logic, there's no logic to hatred and discrimination and things like that. So I don't know how to how to even ask this, but like, are fans of specifically World Athletic Track and Field are they on this bandwagon too? Like, are they are they claiming we want the Semenyas out of our sport because that's not what it's about? I, I, is that is there a groundswell movement of that energy also? You see that a lot. So you you see fans who are anti-Semenya mm -hmm. um, coming from very specific parts of the world. So parts of the world like the United States, like Canada, like Europe. Um, you had a quote from a, a British athlete, um, Gemma Simpson. Yes. Who said definitely. it was literally running against a man. Yes. And I thought it was interesting that it was the British woman complaining about that. I mean, it's so ironic given mm -hmm. given history and what we know mm -hmm. about about the British um, and their mm -hmm. sort of um, involvement in the regulating of um, African bodies um, over you know centuries. Yep. Um, people who are fans of these. European, American, Canadian athletes uh, are often uh, in favor of these bands because um, they want to see their athletes win. Uh, and I think there's also the reality of um, having an athlete from the global south, from a country 
and a sports team or a national sports team that probably isn't anywhere near as well resourced as your own, mm-hmm. uh, coming in just off of sheer talent, mm-hmm. meeting your athletes, there is a sense of entitlement to winning that I think a lot of fans from the from countries in the global north have. Um, the idea of being beat or being beaten by uh, an athlete from not only a country in the global south, but a sub-Saharan African country like mm-hmm. South Africa or Burundi or Uganda, I think it makes people angry. It makes people very, very angry. And so the fans of Semenya that you do see are um, more more likely than not people of color and people who are also from the global South because of what she represents, um, because of, um, I guess, sort of frustration with the general sort of geopolitical trend of these um, Europe-based international bodies, whether it's IAAF or, excuse me, World Athletics Now or the Olympic uh, committee or the World Bank or the International Monetary Fund uh, mm. regulating so severely how people from the global south, how African people go about just living their everyday lives and existing in their bodies. Mm-hmm. Which is, I mean, you mentioned that I was just talking yesterday to a friend. Um, I have family in Puerto Rico and anyone who follows anything going on in Puerto Rico knows that there's basically, not basically, there's been island-wide gentrification going on before Hurricane Maria, but it's really accelerated since then. And this friend um, just brought to my attention, I didn't know that um, Cornelius Rhodes, very famous um, in the medical community, um, celebrated, has awards. Um, he's He's a historically prominent, beloved doctor, um, when he was in Puerto Rico, he literally inje- like gave he, he wrote about Puerto Rico and he wrote that the like the island was beautiful and the weather was perfect and the only thing wrong with it was the people and that the only way to because they were they were they were they were thieves and they were um, all the usual negative crap and so the only solution he wrote this is Cornelius Rhodes for everyone listening like this is someone you can Google and he's a prominent name this isn't some random wacko. He wrote that the only solution was to eliminate the people from the island. And he admitted in his letter that he had begun to do that by giving cancer to some of his subjects unknowingly. Um, this is also an island. This is important to me. I'm Puerto Rican. Um, if he had forced sterilization of thousands of women who never knew it. Um, so you talk global south and like Puerto Rico is not global south. But this ongoing, I used the word entitlement before, this, this ongoing assumption that like that story if it happens to someone who is british or american or irish becomes an oscar-winning film about like human tragedy and if it happens the other way it's history yes i find that very endlessly draining um i think about Brittany griner and how the wnba just this uh, week yeah and um the ncaaw uh, how they have, kind of to your earlier point, capitalized so much uh-huh. on Brittany Griner. I went to a WNBA game 
uh, I think a couple weeks ago, if not, was it last week? No, it was actually last week. Uh, and so I saw um, Brittany Griner uh, playing with the Phoenix Mercury um, against uh, the Dallas Wings. And I mean, the dunks that she was pulling off were just, mm-hmm. I mean, just spectacular to watch. Um, the announcers kind of, you know, going crazy. It's, it's a similar thing that, that, you know, we saw when she was um, uh, an athlete at Baylor, you know, yep. she drew crowds because of what she was able to do. I mean, this is a woman who is uh, a little over seven foot tall. Uh, I mean, she has an incredible wingspan. Um, and as much as she, um, you know, still deals with, um, you know, transphobes and gender critical people who don't like the fact that she, as a woman, uh, as someone who is, you know, biologically female, um, just does not conform to any of the standards that we have for women, including, you know, female athletes. Mm-hmm. Um, these sporting bodies have pretty much welcomed her openly because they know that she could make so much money um, for them. And um, in, in, in addition, because she is an American you know, woman and an American athlete, um, there's a lot of uncritical questioning around gender and gender presentation in a lot of these sub-Saharan African um, athletes, also Indian um, athletes with the case of um, Duchi Chant, I believe. Um, this idea that these countries, whether it's South Africa or Burundi or India, are still mystical in some ways yes. and that we just never really know Right. And so the genetic variation that we see um, from people who come from these countries has to be strictly regulated in ways that any sort of genetic variation that we see uh, from athletes who are American don't get regulated in uh, the same way. Michael Phelps. uh, Brittany Griner and taking it to Europe, to, to Europe, you know, uh, Nikola Jokic, you know, you don't mm-hmm. see that same Victor Wanyemba. I don't know. If oh, Wanyemba, yeah. yeah. Oh my God, he's the ultimate example. Yeah, we're not regulating, and and I would argue that if uh, Victor did not have a white parent and was not, you know, born and raised within mm. Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, if he had two black parents uh, from mm-hmm. sub-Saharan Africa, he probably, um, I don't know for sure, but we, we might say that he might be um, maybe sort of viewed in, in a, maybe a more skeptical way. Undoubtedly, undoubtedly. He'd be raw. Everything about him that they currently call potential would become a question mark, an uh, unknown. Um, uh, uh, it would absolutely, you're 100% correct. Right. But because um, our society still um, has a vested uh, sort of social interest in regulating women's bodies, we Mm -hmm. see that, you know, the sort of intersection of um, geographic location, gender and race 
uh, sort of come together and create this awful matrix of oppression that we see um, uh, Neon Samba, um, Semenya, Duchi Chand all being sort of um, sort of forced under. Mm-hmm. And I think also it's a if you were to apply the axiom that like energy is if matter is neither created nor destroyed and you, you want to apply that to energy then we can apply it to like a lot of social movements racism is not it evolves it's going to evolve it's going to change things are like going to be there we had on our show a couple of weeks ago um frankie de la creta who writes a lot about um gender and sexuality in different sports and we were talking in that episode specifically about um mostly um swimming and women's football swimming because it's such a location of racism and gendered notion historically in, in this country like mm-hmm. who has access to swimming and what bodies are idealized is the kind we want to see in a pool or and what kinds are discriminated against and she and we in the discussion got to a point um that i hadn't seen coming about she was talking i'm sorry oh my god forgive me they were talking frankie was talking about um how in Frankie wrote a book um, with another author about women's tackle football, which there's a long history of in the United States. Um, there are, there's leagues that exist still to this day. It's very popular, some of them. Um, but Frankie was making the point that the NFL, at the same time that it's finally acknowledging to some extent, like, well, football is dangerous to the brain. CTE is dangerous. Football causes CTE. So, the NFL is investing very specifically in flag football, particularly for women. There are women's flag football leagues that are growing. There's promotion. There's commercial energy behind it. There is no correspondent support, though, for women's tackle football. And one of the points we came to was, if you acknowledge football is dangerous, but we're, we run the NFL, so we're going to keep that business going, but we're going to promote flag football as an alternative, but only for women. What you're telling the world, again, is this is an evolution of men's control over women's bodies. That you're telling women they don't have the right to decide what risks to take or what to do with their bodies. Um, And it's similar to me when you think about the Semenya story, that in almost any case in men's sports, physical exceptionality is transcendent. And in women's sports, it sounds like it's transgressive in this case. It's not, oh, my God, you've opened our eyes to what can be. It's, no, 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 we don't want to see that. Like, we don't want to see that. Um, I, I, I I wanted to ask you this also. The last question I want to ask you about Semenya, and then I wanted to ask you about a couple other topics. Um, it, has there been a any support for her from famous athletes, fellow athletes, competitors? Like, are there people within the world of track and field or, or world athletics that have, that have advocated and stood up for Semenya, or is this something that she's kind of left with on her own? So um, when I uh, wrote this piece a couple of years ago, there wasn't a lot of support for her. Mm-hmm. Um, what was very interesting to me though, was to see uh, the near radio silence from um, American athletes, mm-hmm. uh, given the fact that the majority of Um, the U.S. women's Olympic track and field team are and have for a long time been Black American women. Mm -hmm. Um, 
I don't know if maybe there was some sort of directive from up above that uh, you know let them know this is not something you should um, you should comment on. But as much as sort of U.S. citizenship and nationality uh, can be a protective factor to female athletes who uh, just have genetic variety and sort of their physical presentation. Um, Black women's femininity is constantly under attack and under critique um, within this country. And so I did expect, maybe naively so, to see some sort of solidarity um, with Semenya. Um, I'm sort of thinking of that uh, really famous poem, you know, first they came for Uh the Jews. I was not a Jew. Right. Because um, to me, from the perspective of a sociologist who um, has a pretty decent understanding of how these issues have transpired historically um, and within different um, institutions, be, be they, you know, political institutions, medical institutions, uh, nobody's safe. Nobody is safe. So whatever testosterone um, markers, as arbitrary as they are, that uh, the Olympic, World Olympics or World Athletics, um, you know, starts to really um, sort of uh, perpetuate and and really sort of um, hold female athletes to, we, we don't know which athletes are safe. We don't know who may test genetically um, uh, with a really high androgen level. Maybe it's not testosterone. Maybe someone has other really high levels of androgens. It's particularly interesting to me, and I'm going to put on my medical sociology hat, given how many Black women uh, within the United States um, test positive for a condition called polycystic ovarian syndrome, uh, in which they just naturally have higher male androgen levels, and it can sometimes hmm. cause issues with fertility. Um, it's it's sort of a whole body metabolic um, issue. Okay. But a lot of Black women end up having um, PCOS, and a lot of Black athletes, Black female athletes, uh, whether knowingly or unknowingly, they end up, I mean, maybe maybe they may not have tested positive and been open about it. Some have, mm-hmm. um, or not test positive, but, you know, have the mm-hmm. sort of, you know, markers, the androgen markers that indicate PCOS. And some, uh, maybe they've never tested or maybe they, they're not open about it, but they have all of the sort of symptoms, the physical presentation mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, that a lot of uh, other women with PCOS have. So the idea that, Semenya can be so easily sacrificed because she's different. Oh, because, you know, she's African, she's South African, she was born intersex. We just don't know how far world athletics and uh, the international Olympic committee will go. We don't Mm -hmm. know who's going to in the future be disqualified because of their own sort of, you know, genetic variation in hormone markers 
it's a really bad precedent to set for everybody. Mm -hmm. And I really wish that there were more, that she had more support. Granted, um, it, it, it probably goes without saying that the South African uh, team is completely behind her and runners from uh, various Sub-Saharan African countries are um, very much so behind her. They sort of see, see it as a one for all, all for one. Um, but athletes from the global north, not a whole lot of them see it that way. Which strikes me as if you have any notion of history and power in any sense, you know that they're not going to stop where they are now. Like they never draw the line where they are now. Um, you mentioned American track and field. Um, very sad story out of that that sport this week that I wanted to ask you about a little bit. Um, I was not familiar with this athlete before, but uh, Tori Bowie is an Olympic American Olympian runner. She completed in the long jump, in the 100, the 200 meters. And at the 2016 Olympics in Brazil, she won a gold, a silver, and a bronze. Um, she died this week after suffering complications from childbirth. She was eight months and in labor at the time of her passing, the complications potentially include respiratory distress and eclampsia. Mm -hmm. I keep coming back to a sentence that I read about um, Bowie's death in USA Today, where the article said, quote, the manner of death was ruled natural. I do not have a medical hat to put on. I was terrible at biology in high school. That's just not my thing. But I've studied and lived enough to know that I just have the feeling right off the bat that if a white American Olympic athlete had died at 32, that the first response would not be that the death was natural. I might be completely wrong about this. I don't know. I don't know about, I'm learning about eclampsia. I'm learning about all these things, but what, I mean, when you hear this story, the, the first feeling I get from this story is like, this can't happen. This shouldn't happen. The more I read about it, the more I, I am learning, like, not only does it happen, but it as with so many things in this country, it afflicts one group of people more than it seems to afflict others. Have you have you studied or do you have any familiarity with with? Well, sorry, let me let me track back on that first. When you saw this story. And you read what happened and everything. What what was the first thoughts or feelings that came to you? So, I had really, I had a lot of feelings um, when Tori when Tori Bowie was announced dead. I believe it was in the towards the end of May, mid to end of May, if I'm not mistaken, and. Initially, there we didn't have any sort of reporting on what she died from. I don't even think a lot of people knew that she was pregnant. Mm, okay. um, but I remember that as the days went on, um, there were some stories that were being published. Um, and there was one narrative that uh, that was published in, in that, you know, neighbors, uh, her neighbors said that um, she... Uh, had some sort of history of acting erratically, right? And that she may have suffered from sort of mental health issue. I never heard that, but 
now knowing what the true cause of death was, um, it is extremely offensive that one of the first sort of things that we heard surrounding her death was some sort of hysteria related, you know, crazy black woman related situation. Mm -hmm. And it's not to minimize um, the issues and, you know, even the deaths of, uh, of, of black women who suffer from mental illness. Yeah, of course. It's just, you know, how does that become the first thing that we sort of, the first thing that we hear around, uh, you know, the circumstances of her death when we now know uh, that was not the case at all. Mm -hmm. um, secondly, it is increasingly concerning that so many top tier black female athletes either keep dying in childbirth or getting really close to dying in childbirth. So I believe uh, I read uh, just earlier today uh, a tweet from Allison Felix that three of the four members of that Olympic gold medalist, uh, gold medal winning four by one relay team have had uh, pregnancy near death or deadly pregnancy complications, including Allison Felix herself. Wow. Who had, did not know that at all. Yes. Who had uh, a tough pregnancy and almost lost her life in a way that was, um, you know, kind of similar to what uh, Serena Williams experienced uh, after her, yeah. after the birth of her first child being neglected to the point where uh, she had um, a clot developed that um, could have uh, killed her similar to, and I know she's not technically considered an athlete, but similar to Beyonce who hmm. almost died from the same thing that we now know that um, Tori, Tori Bowie passed away from uh, preeclampsia, eclampsia. Okay. Right. And so when I think about the use of the word natural, right. Um, we have to first admit to ourselves that such a concept is still socially constructed, right? Mm -hmm. What we consider to be natural and unnatural, even within a biological, you know, health medicine um, sort of sphere is very much so socially constructed. It's why you have world athletics coming up with new tests to, to then test Semenya, to then prove that she is not woman enough or female enough to compete in the female category uh, of track and field. We did not really have tests that would have excluded her. And so what they had to do is make something, construct something that could be used to sort of concretely and empirically, in quotation marks, exclude mm. her. So what we consider to be natural, again, is still very much so a social construction. And if we don't already view Black women as fully human, right, and as fully deserving of humanity, Dorothy Roberts has written a great book called Killing the Black Body around uh, sort of the history of uh, Black women's reproductive rights within the United States. And if we consider the fact that um, for centuries in this country, 
Black women were seen as breeding machines with very little concern for their overall reproductive and physical well-being. Black women would die in childbirth mm -hmm. um, and slave masters didn't really care because there were there were more to replace her with yeah. or they just buy purchase um, more more enslaved people enslaved women so there has long been a sort of callousness I would say around black women's health issues writ large but especially as it relates to um, reproductive health and um, childbirth and labor um, and I, I wholeheartedly believe that if white women were dying in labor as often as black women. It's not to say that black, that, me, that white women are not um, having maternal, uh, uh, having an increase in maternal right. uh, morbidity rates. I mean, maternal um, mortality and morbidity for the United States has gone up around the board, just full yeah. spectrum. That's a weird American thing to me. That's been going on a few, that's been going on years. For a while. Um, mm. But given that there is so much social and political anxiety around um, low rates of childbirth, specifically concerning white women, mm -hmm. I would I, I would find it very difficult to believe that if so many high profile white women were athletes, uh, were passing away uh, due to childbirth complications, um, or having, you know, near death experiences, I would, I, I think that this country would be moving very differently um, around, you know, maybe conducting more scientific uh, studies, um, trying to find ways to um, increase and expand maternal health care. But because Black women, especially pregnant Black women, have a long history of being seen as disposable, as expendable, I think that kind of explains the um, the callousness and the sort of medical apathy that we see surrounding these these cases. I wouldn't say I'm glad that you used those words, but they struck me where I was thinking as you were talking when you used callous. Um, because it made me think of this this very ugly bookend that when you when you mentioned that or three of her four teammates had struggled with the same. And I, I read a lot about sports. I read about sports all the time, all kinds of sports. I never, ever, ever, ever knew that that piece of information. And it made me think about this double bookend in terms of life and in terms of value. Growing up, I remember when there would be, um, I had a friend, my best friend growing up was a, was a Puerto Rican kid. His mother was murdered. And I remember growing up, paying attention whenever there was a story on the news where usually it was a death and if it was in a if it was in a black or a spanish-speaking community the local reporters often would like that night they have the family there they go to the apartment door they're getting a reaction and you and these people's visceral immediate pain is on the screen for everyone to witness and it's it's loud but callous mm -hmm. And then you talk about this, not invisible, but this ignored um, 
common if, if you know, like you said, if Taylor Swift had preeclampsia, they would nationalize a whole movement tomorrow to like get rid of it. But the silence now, the silence of, you know, these are Olympians. These aren't just athletes. They're not just professional <coughs> black athletes. They're American Olympians. And still, even at this point, they pass into silence for so many people. Um, there's something about that quality on both ends that's really mm -hmm. symmetrical in a dark way to me. The, the loudness that doesn't register and then the quietude that also doesn't register. Mm. If you don't hear those things, what do you hear, you know? I, I think that's, that's a very poignant, you know, observation to make. I also think about the fact that Tori Bowie died alone in yes. labor. And I cannot imagine how terrifying that must have been. I cannot imagine how unbelievably scared mm -hmm. she must have been. Um, I just can't. I, I, it's so awful to, mm -hmm. to, to think about that. I believe her body laid in her apartment for about a week, if I'm not mistaken, from the reports that I read before yeah. they... Yeah found her yeah, yeah i don't know enough about her and her close relationships to comment on that but there is something so painfully striking about what well, i mean at eight months pregnant anything can happen right um and so thinking about the fact that she was alone, both she was vulnerable, vulnerable, right? So mm -hmm. the physical aspect of that aloneness in her final moments, the emotional, the mental aspect um, of that. And, and I think that that unfortunately is, you know, a mirror into black women's experiences in this country. Um, the idea that black women are supposed to save this country and are supposed to be seen as the black, the, the backbone of so many institutions, whether it's yep. the black church, whether it's the democratic party, whether it's, you know, professional sports, right. Thinking yep. about Angel Reese and yes. the level of disrespect that people threw upon her. A college of um, young Probably teenage kid. A, what, a 20 or 21 year old. The kid. That's still a kid. I mean, that's so young. Right. It's so young. Even if you agree or disagree, at the, at the end of the day, this, I mean, you, you had grown men reporting. Keith Olbermann. Keith Olbermann. Yes. Slurring her with his Twitter account to millions of people. And he could be her grandfather. Right. Yep. Like this yep. idea that black women are expected to carry so, so many of these social institutions. I mean, where would the women's NCAA be without black women? Um, you know, don't let the Caitlin Clark fool you. She's fantastic. But the the backbone of this league has mm -hmm. has like always been um, young oh. black 
girls. And so the way that we are expected to hold up these institutions, but when it comes to issues that specifically affect us, like, you know, gendered racism and misogynoir, like, uh, you know, um, discrepancies in racial discrepancies in health outcomes, like uh, Black women's particular particular susceptibility to um, sexual and intimate partner violence, right? Mm-hmm. Black mm-hmm. women's particular susceptibility to police violence, yep. how so often we have to be alone in that fight. And I hate that so much for Tori Bowie, and I, I really wish that her last moments on this earth weren't marked by loneliness. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I had, I, the thought of anyone alone in a vulnerable moment, but then you compound it with everything that you're saying. And then, and, you know, you mentioned, we could talk about this, you know, for three hours, but there's also, there's also then the, the, I think specifically for, for, yet another one of the injustices that American black women face specifically is you mention all of this just assumption. Okay. They'll take care of this. They'll take care of this. They'll take care of this. And they're fine. They're doing okay. They're fine. And if they're not, and they say something, that's a problem for a lot of people. Don't want to hear it. Don't want to hear it like at all. Um, Oh God. I'm sorry. I just realized my battery is very close to dying. Um, So, but to tie up to what you just said, um, you had mentioned Brittany Griner earlier in the piece, and you alluded to her time at Baylor. It's always worth remembering Brittany Griner's coach at Baylor is the enormously successful Kim Mulkey, who, I think it's Mulkey, um, has not ever really been publicly supportive of Griner, um, her sexuality, gender um, identification. Like, just an- another striking example that literally the the woman posited at the end of this year's NCAA women's tournament is the head coach of the champion <coughs> winning team. And she's so that woman is nowhere without not just Brittany Griner, but the 12th girl on her team, the 13th girl on her team, everyone involved who got her to the point where she gets to now be on top of everything. And yet still, I believe when Griner was in Russia, they still, it was like pulling teeth, trying to get Mulkey to just like, just say the obvious public relations, like, I want her home. I, she couldn't even do that. She refused, which was yeah. so, I mean, it was such a disgrace. Um, I feel very strongly about this. So I'm going to have to be a little bit careful with what I say. But <laughs> actually, no. Go I'm for not, it. Please don't go for it. I'm actually Please not going it. to be careful. I'm actually <laughs> just going to say it because I really feel like it needs to be said, right? Um mm-hmm. It is not lost on me that Kim Mulkey, a Louisiana born and bred woman, a former, you know, highly heralded athlete herself, right? But a Southern woman, nonetheless, Uh. viewed Brittany Griner and treated her, given what we know about, you know, conversations that were had with Brittany Griner about, you know, the expectation that she would hide her sexuality, that she would kind of tone it down so as to not uh, sort of uh, clash with the sort of conservative religious um, 
sort of uh, what's what I'm looking for the uh, the Ethos. Christian representation, yeah, yes. of, of Baylor. Um, yes. Knowing what we know about how that affected Griner and um, yep. Yep. that entire situation, it's just not lost on me the optics um, because it feels like plantation politics. Um, and it might actually be, um, depending on how on how radically you, you're willing to get with the mm -hmm. get with, with the claim. But um, it's just not lost on me that this is a white woman, a southern white woman, who mm -hmm. literally depends on black bodies, black female bodies, and has depended on black female bodies for the entirety of her coaching career. Would not have the wealth would not have the fame and the regard that she currently does without black female bodies. But mm -hmm. as soon as they become, um, I guess, basically, uh, as soon as she no longer needs them for her own personal gain, mm -hmm. there's no support. There's no sort of reciprocity. There's no sort of acknowledgement that, you know, I would not be, where I am without you or without y'all in general. So yes. I'm going to speak up, even if I don't agree with, you know, Griner's protest of the national anthem, even if let's say you don't even, she didn't even like Brittany Griner at this mm -hmm. point, the fact that she did not even care enough about not only Brittany Griner, but her athletes and other you know, black female basketball players enough to say, okay, it's important for me to make this statement because she is important to this community. And this community is at the very least financially and professionally important to me. The fact that she could not even do that yep. says so much about how these coaches uh, within the NCAA, within these major professional leagues, view their black athletes they are expendable to them i hope angel reese was paying attention and the other lsu was it lsu yeah lsu players um because you're not just sending a message to griner but your current players are seeing how you're treating the greatest of your former players yep. so they have to be aware of that also the irony of kim mulkey who is so you use the expression toned down. She's not a toned down person Extremely in terms of her flashy. in terms of her speech, her dress, her any of it. The I the especially grotesque irony of that person who flaunts their voluntary uh whatever you want to call it. Basically not basically telling one of their students, one of their players, hide who you are is astonishing as a blind, like astonishing to live that way. And I think speaks to what your point is. I do think, like, how did, how could someone possibly be that audacious? Because they don't think about it. Because it's just, this is how it is. This is how it should be and has been. Um, exactly. Um, I feel so bad for, I, I mean, I felt bad for Brittany Griner having to sort of see that someone who probably meant a lot to her at some point, yes. uh, who regularly wears feathers and sequins and six inch heels on a basketball yep. court, you yep. know, I wasn't even willing to say, I hope you make it back home. 
Just on a human level, I hope you're okay. On a human level. But it goes back to, I guess, one of the original points that we discussed about um, a lot of these folks within sports just not being able to recognize Black people's humanity and more specifically, Black women's humanity. Mm-hmm. Elizabeth Adetiba, I'm extremely grateful for your time on this episode. I'm only ending it now because I'm literally going to, I was a dummy and I didn't bring up my power cord with me. Now I'm going to run out, but I follow you from afar. I root from you from afar. Uh, Our audience will now too. We can find you on Twitter at, oh, it starts with, tell me your Twitter handle again. It's at Liz tweets things. Yes. At Liz tweets things. Very good page. Very informative. Um, Very, very just, I love it. I love, I just love, I love seeing your brain express things and now getting to talk to you. It's also very exciting. So um, do you have any, it sounds like you're just, you're getting done with school. So there's not any other right now sports features that we should be looking out for or waiting on for me to have other stuff going on. Features um, coming out um, soon, but I do have a piece coming out. What's today? Thursday. So maybe sometime within the next few days the next week um, about, um, you know, misogynistic podcast bros and um, how that uh, sort of reflects on the current state of uh, gender relations. Hmm. Um, it's not enough to just sort of look at people like Andrew Tate and Joe Rogan and sort of write them off as just, oh, those are just, you know, random loud mouths. Um, no. Unfortunately, they uh, reflect much deeper problems in society that we've kind of got to get real on. So um, that should be out um, pretty soon for Salon. So, okay, awesome. Well, we'll keep an eye out for that. Um, I would love to have you on in the future, and I promise if I do, I will ask you, I will. <laughs> I feel like I asked you a lot of difficult questions today, and I feel like the next time I have you on the show, maybe we can focus on some positive things. Um, sure, absolutely. Balance. <laughs> this was meaningful, and I appreciate that. And a lot of the um, perspective and the information that you brought, I think, is really going to be uh, informative and useful to our listeners, as I know it was for me. So um, you can find her at Liz Tweets Things. Um, keep a lookout for the salon piece and her work in the future continue to keep you in mind and spirit as you finish your doctoral candidacy. Um, And thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me.